now that this week in global history is history, it's time to sit back, relax, and relive the week that was in global history class. Coming to you live from 2.35, Mr. Palumbo is ready to take you on a journey into the past to understand the present and change the future. Welcome to Enduring Issues. Hello all and welcome to Enduring Issues for the second week of November 2019. This episode is Imperialism Part 2. Uh, part 1 of Imperialism we dropped a few days ago on Tuesday. That covers everything from the reasons for imperialism initially all the way up to and including uh, the Opium Wars. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, uh, make sure you go back and, and check that one. These two uh, podcast episodes, Imperialism Part 1 and 2, are to be used to get you ready for your imperialism test, which is taking place again on Wednesday, uh, November 13th, so a few days from now. Uh, so thank you for checking in, taking the time to uh, ensure you can do as well on that test as you possibly can. So last episode, we left off with the Opium Wars, right? The Opium Wars, um, the conflict between the British and China, uh, fighting over British smuggling illegal opium into China and China trying to rid itself um, of that of that terrible drug um, and, to, and to get the British influence out of there. Obviously, the British beat the Chinese quite handily and get all sorts of concessions from the Chinese um, as part of that Treaty of Nanking or Treaty of Nanjing. So from there, uh, that's where we pick up our story uh, for this week, right? Our, our eyes look back towards China. Uh, China is seen around the world as um, weaker now, someone that can be uh, taken advantage of. Other uh, Western nations, other imperialistic countries have seen what the British were able to do in China and what they were able to get out of China. So we start to look at um, a new vocab term for us. Uh, the vocab term is a sphere of influence. All right, think back to your geometry class is what a sphere is, right? Like a basketball, all right? Something round, um, total complete. It's, there's, you know, nothing really gets in and out. It's all encompassing. Um, so these spheres of influence are what are going to develop in China, all right? So European um, imperialistic nations are going to come into China. They're not going to take over all of it. So this isn't, you know, full-blown imperialism where one country takes over another. These are parts of the country, and different European countries have different areas of control, other spheres of influence within China. So England, France, Germany, um, even Japan, another East Asian nation, gets in and having a sphere of influence in China. Now, all these European countries, all they really care about inside of these sections of China, these spheres of influence, is controlling the economy. Um, is to be able to gain money and have influence over the economic system of that part of China. For that reason, to help us remember that, we always spell sphere of influence with a dollar sign. All right, just to let us know that they're only concerned with the economic situation in that sphere. Our European countries don't care terribly much about the culture and tradition of that area, uh, changing the governmental system or education or religion, anything like that. Uh, just being able to, to make money and have an influence over those sections. Now, with this, we've seen this pattern 
many, many times before where a European or Western power comes in. Uh, they have some sort of influence or control, and whoever the native peoples are there don't like it. They don't want them there. Uh, they want to get rid of this foreign influence, and the story in China is no different. Um, for us, those resisting, those pushing back against the foreigners are going to be a group known as the Boxers. The Boxers get this name, uh, they get this nickname really from, from the Western countries that there, that observe this group. Um, practicing their martial arts in the streets. Uh, this is their fighting style as well. Um, so just, you know, throwing the punches when they're practicing, they get the nickname the Boxers. And this group is going to rebel or push back against this European influence. And their main goal, the main goal of the Boxers, is to get the foreigners out of China, all right, to push back against them. Now, they're up against, you know, many European countries, many modern industrialized nations, um, that have a foothold in China and want to keep their influence there. So nations um, from Europe, so England, France, Germany, Italy, the United States sends troops, Russia sends troops, totaling almost 20,000 troops uh, from these industrialized nations are going to come to China to put down this rebellion, all right, to make sure that they get to keep their economic influence over these over these spheres of influence in China. And, and the boxers are... are quite easily defeated here by the by the European powers. From there, we moved on to look at imperialism in a slightly different part of the world. Our attention moves to India, and we're going to spend the next couple of days uh, looking at imperialism in India, while some of the other regions that we've looked at before, uh, the continent of Africa, we looked at China, we had different European nations taking over or having influence over different pieces of those places. For India, it's only going to be the British. All right, only the British are going to have um, an influence um, and interests in Asia. Uh, the story there begins with not with the country of, of Great Britain, but with a company from Great Britain, the British East India Company. The British East India Company um, is a, a private corporation coming out of Great Britain, obviously, um, and their interests are with, with trading. All right, with commerce. They're going to take raw materials out of India initially, things like tea and cotton, and they're going to send those raw materials back to England. All right, England's industrializing. They need these extra raw materials to make finished products. Um, this is also that same group. We've heard this, this name before, the British East India Company. They're the ones uh, working to smuggle opium into China back when we did the opium wars. Um, but our attention is going to be drawn to them again here. So the British East India Company um, for you know, almost 200 years is going to have a huge influence on the country of India. right? They're going to move beyond being just a company, and they're going to become a nation really unto themselves. We saw they have their own flag, they have their own currency, their own judicial system, their own military. Um, and the comparison we tried to make today, it's tough to wrap our minds around it, but think of you know, Nike being in control of the Argentina right, and having their own Nike currency and their own Nike military and their own Nike police um, and their own Nike rule of law and flag and judicial system and, and the whole thing. This is the power and control the British East India Company had over India um, for over 200 years. This influence, though, um, is going to begin to run out, right? We had mentioned that they had their own military force. And within India, they had to hire Indian men 
uh, to join this British East India military force. Uh, these men were known as sepoys. And the sepoys, right, Indian men that fought and worked for the British East India Company, um, are going to kick off a rebellion, right? They're going to be the catalyst to, uh, to push the British East India Company's influence out of India. And that, that event, that seminal event, the Sepoy Rebellion, um, is something that we spent a good deal of time looking at. We looked at it first with the causes, the reasons why. Why did these Sepoys rebel? The reason for this, this rebellion from the Sepoys um, goes back to something that seems relatively simple, right? They got these new uh, bullet cartridges uh, to load their Enfield rifles. Um, however, it's what was on these bullet cartridges. The bullet cartridges are greased, right, to keep them slippery or lubricated as they go in the barrel um, with either pig fat or cow fat. Now, going back to what you remember from ninth grade, connecting some, some prior learning there, uh, what you know about the Hindu religion and the Muslim religion, which uh, majority of these sepoys were. We know the cow is sacred to the Hindu religion, and Muslims are prevented or restricted um, from eating any pork products. So the pork fat and cow fat that's used to lubricate these bullet cartridges um, is very offensive to both of their faiths, right? And the simple act of having to bite open these cartridges uh, to pour them into their, their rifle barrels um, is something that religiously they're prohibited from doing and were terribly offended by. Another, um, again, connecting back to what you remember about uh, Hinduism, especially from, from ninth grade, is the Hindu caste system. So we you know, talked about that a little bit and, and reviewed what that was. But the connection to make there is, you know, to what we're learning about here, is that as part of the caste system, part of the rules, if you left India, you lost your place in the caste. If you left India and you returned, uh, you started back at the bottom again as an untouchable. So these sepoys, these troops, um, were at one point ordered to go out as the British East India Company is expanding its influence in the region. Um, these sepoys were to be sent out uh, to, to fight battles for them. And again, leaving the country meant losing their caste. So something else that another major grievance that the sepoys had against the British East India Company. And in 1857, they rebel. They fight back. They start insurrection. Um, the sepoy rebellion or sepoy mutiny, as you will see, or as you'll also hear it called. The sepoy rebellion lasts almost two years. And the simple fact that it lasts that long is telling for us. Um, eventually, the British government uh, gets kind of fed up with how long it's taking for the British East India Company uh, to control and put down this rebellion. The British are going to send in regular British military troops to put down this rebellion. And that's going to spell the end of British East India Company's rule in India. So starting about 1858 going forward, the British government is now going to be in charge of India. The British military itself uh, will be there to patrol and control what goes on in India. This era of British control, starting in 1858, going all the way up until Indian independence, which we haven't covered, um, in 1947, is known as the Raj, R-A-J, the Raj. This is the era, again, of British control in India. Now, to help us understand what life was like under the Raj, uh, we did a debate in class where we looked at and we tried to answer the question, was British imperialism in India a good thing for India 
or was it a bad thing for India? Because um, you can find information and sources. You can find scholars that um, could argue both positions. So we looked at both of those positions. We used primary and secondary sources to examine that evidence. Was this era of the British Raj a positive or negative for India? Those sources that we looked at and studied on the positive side noted things like the increase in technology and modernization that took place in India. Uh, things like running um, you know, thousands of miles of railroad track and telegraph lines. Um, you know, more railroad track is laid in India than any European country would have at that time. Um, again, the telegraph lines. Improvements in education, improvements in medicine and health care. Um, are, you know, this modernization of the infrastructure of India is seen as um, an argument for why it's a good thing that um, the British imperialized India. On the negative side um, are massive human rights violations, um, the segregating uh, the different religions, in certain cases putting the religions against each other, um, offending both religions, Hindus and Muslims, by various practices that took place in India. Um, massive famines taking place at many different times throughout the Raj, throughout British rule. Um, you know, as part of the, the positives that the British side would tout is the amount of money coming into India, the amount of uh, cash crops and products that they're able to produce in India and then export. But on the negative side of that, obviously, is these cash crops, they're pretty useless to the people themselves, right? You can't eat cotton. You can't eat um, tea, can't eat tobacco, these things that um, the Indian people were producing. Um, so whereas, you know, previously or without British influence, they would have been growing crops and food and regular things like that. Um, this huge, massive food shortage is costing millions of lives um, in these famines. So again, just a, just a good example of um, different points of view and ways to look at uh, one situation, depending on what kind of source or where that source is from, um, people can have complete opposite um, opinions about whether things were positive or negative. Um, moving on from that, the last region that we look at um, in terms of imperialism is Japan. And here, the, the script is going to be flipped a little bit. All right. Every other situation that we've looked at so far, uh, we've had a, a Western nation, a European country. It's already been modernized for a while, uh, taking over a, a weaker, less industrialized, less civilized country. Right. We saw that all throughout the scramble for Africa. We saw that with the spheres of influence in China. Uh, we've seen that in, in Latin America and many other places, India. Um, but when we look at Japanese imperialism, it's almost the opposite. Here we have an East Asian nation is the one doing the imperializing. Um, a, a country in Japan that has just very recently, relatively recently, uh, become industrialized. So to, to see how they were able to, to take over other places, how Japan was able to gain some power and influence on the world stage, obviously we had to look at some historical circumstances. We went back to the familiar pattern, uh, the familiar recipe, if you will, um, for what nations do when they industrialize. Um, and Japan followed that same pattern. Starting with the Meiji Restoration, Japan's going to modernize. They're going to build factories. They're going to modernize their infrastructure, transportation, military, things like that under Emperor Meiji, uh, just like the British did. They're going to use the raw materials that they have available to them uh, in order to make that happen. 
And then once they run short of those raw materials or they need more or different kinds, they're going to look at outside sources for those. They're going to look to, um, if they can't get them freely or through trade, they're going to look to imperialize neighboring nations and neighboring land to get those necessary materials. You know, geographically, um, Japan, we describe it in class as just a, a rock in the middle of the ocean. And if you're living on a rock in the middle of the ocean, you lack a lot of natural resources. All right, you need to look to the outside world to acquire those things. Um, and that's what Japan is going to do during the time of their imperialism. The major seminal event in this for them is when they look to the west, just across the Sea of Japan. They look towards Korea. They look towards Manchuria. Um, in northern China, and there they're going to run into some competition. Russia is going to want those same areas, right? Russia is always looking for ports, more land on the coast um, that has warm water. Most of their coastline is, is frozen part of the year, so it's kind of useless for their trade and military ships. So they want to look in that area to gain some warm water ports. Uh, but again, Japan needs that land for natural resources. So the major conflict, the first major conflict of the 20th century, all eyes are going to be on this because it's the first one, um, is the Russo-Japanese War taking place in 1904-1905. All eyes were on this one. And again, most people thought that Russia would just crush Japan in this Russo-Japanese War. Uh, Russia being the landmass size, the landmass, one of the largest countries in the world, stretching across 12 different time zones, um, nearly unlimited natural resources. Um, it's, a, it's a westernized uh, culture. They've gone through industrialization already, um, considered for the most part a European country against little Japan, one that had just modernized recently, a relatively small island lacking natural resources. Um, and the whole world you know, kind of has their money on Russia in this one, basically. And when Japan beats Russia in this Russo-Japanese war, it sends shockwaves throughout the world, all right? The impacts and effects of it. Um, Japan has a major increase in nationalism and national pride. They have this increased desire to expand across Asia and into the Pacific. Uh, Russia is embarrassed and humiliated. Uh, this adds a lot of fuel to the, the Russian Revolution and the Russian people's uh, disillusionment with uh, their czar, Tsar Nicholas. And we'll take care of the Russian Revolution at a later time. Um, and the rest of the world is on notice. Other European countries are on notice that this could happen to them at some point. Um, nations in Asia uh, are on notice that Japan is, is kind of the, the ruling power now in that region and they're subject to being taken over by the Japanese as well. Um, we were even able to make some long-term predictions here um, as to what this will lead to, right? When we look at that idea of Japan wanting to take over and have control of the Pacific, students were able to pick up on that um, this could be a, a precursor, a warning towards Pearl Harbor, uh, an event which most students know about from previous social studies classes. So making some uh, inferencing and, and looking way ahead there, making some ties is great. So that's where we leave off with our imperialism unit. You know, before the test, be looking over any and all notes that you have for this one. Be listening to obviously part one of the podcast as well, going back and checking that out um, and uh, listening to this um, a few more times if you need to as well. I hope you enjoy your long three-day weekend. Um, enjoy Veterans Day. Remember the reason uh, that we have that day off, and we will see everyone back in school on Tuesday.
Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this look back into the week that was in global history. The goal, as always, is to be enlightened. If not enlightened, at least entertained. For global updates throughout the week, follow Mr. P on Twitter at Mr. P underscore Braves. And remember, this isn't just his story or her story. It's your story, too.